Well, over the last few chapters, uh, John has followed Jesus in, through the, uh, what we could call the Jewish calendar, um, and Jesus has gone from one feast to the next on the, Jews, uh, on, on the Jewish calendar. And, and as he's done this, Jesus has been using these feasts to explain John's main thesis for his gospel, which is how we can have life in Jesus how ultimately salvation is found in him, how freedom is found in him, how we can find the presence of God in our lives through Jesus. We can rest in that reality. And, and today we have another interesting passage because it's, it's kind of one of these passages, if you've noticed, John will have like a, a passage that's uh, like a speech by Jesus. Like last week, we saw that this all culminates in all these feasts with Jesus saying, I give you life and it looks like me being a good shepherd. And you are my sheep, and I lead you into life, into good pastures. And I feed, I lead, I care, I protect you. And, and then what happens in John's gospel is after one of these speeches, we, we get these interactions with people, sometimes religious leaders, sometimes it's, it's with his disciples. Here, here it's with the Jews. And, and often what's happening in these, because we easily breeze over them. They just seem like dialogue and a back and forth. Maybe we'll, we'll pick a verse out of it and just focus on a verse there. But often what's happening is Jesus is pausing and saying, do you really believe what I've just said? Do, do you really understand what I've just said? Because what's going to happen next week is we're going to come to the famous passage of the resurrection of Lazarus. We're going to see the final sign of John's gospel when, when Jesus raises his people from the dead. And what's happening here is Jesus is having this interaction where he's saying, do you really understand what it means to have me as your shepherd, to really rest in my hand? Because if you have that, then you will actually be able to walk in newness of life and experience the resurrection. But often what happens is why Jesus will do this and why John has these interactions is because it forces us to ask the questions of the text that we often want to get around. And, and today the question that the text forces us to ask is, is where do we actually find salvation? Where do we actually find that sense of, of peace, of, of being saved, of being protected, of salvation would be the term biblically, the ultimate sense of that. And we're gonna, what Jesus is going to unpack here is, is it really, the question is, is it really in the hands of the shepherd that we find salvation, or is it by our own hands? See, the context in this passage is another feast, and it's a unique feast, one that actually isn't included in the Old Testament. It's the first feast in John's gospel that isn't included in the Old Testament. It's this feast of dedication, it says in verse 1. And you may not have heard of the feast of dedication, but I guarantee you've heard of its modern name, Hanukkah. See, Hanukkah is just the Hebrew word for dedication. And so Hanukkah was this national, big national holiday that was being celebrated in Jesus' day. It was a new holiday, and it, it rec it's recounted in, in the book of, of 2 Maccabees, which is found in what we now call the Apocrypha. Um, it was a historical book that captured what happened in about 200 BC. And, and, about, and, and it's, this is very important to set the stage for this passage with the context of this feast, because what John does is like a Passover and the Feast of Tabernacles and whatnot, the, ta the context of that feast is everything. It forms the background of the scene that the early readers of this gospel would have clearly understood. And so what happened in 167, I think I have some of these bullet pointed here, 167 BC, a Greek king, Antiochus Epiphanes, he raided Jerusalem and set up an altar to Zeus in the temple. 
So Israel was a sovereign nation, and they had the temple in the middle of the sea. They just reestablished it after it was torn down after Solomon's day, and they had reestablished the temple. And this Greek king comes in, he desecrates it, he sets up worship to Zeus in the middle of the Holy of Holies. This is often what people believe is the prophecy in the book of Daniel of the abomination of desolation, if you've ever heard of that. Uh, They believe that this is the first kind of fulfillment of that. And then also he banned circumcision. So not only did he desecrate the temple, but he banned circumcision. And then also throughout the temple, he sacrificed pigs. So I know if you're from Iowa, you're like, what's the big deal? Well, pigs, (laughs) pigs, pigs were the most unclean animal in the Old Testament law. And so this was something that was deeply humiliating. It was sacrilegious. It was something that was threatening. But it was, especially for the nation of Israel, the most humiliating moment that they had had recently. Now, in response, a group, and this is what the piece of dedication captures, a group of militarized Jews known as the Maccabeans, they, they kind of pulled together this successful revolt, and it was led by this guy, Judah, Judah Maccabeus, and, and, and he got this nickname. His name was Judah the Hammer, right? I think we have a picture of the guy, right? He's like, I, <laughs> he's almost like the Jewish Thor, right? Like he has, he has this hammer and he's known in battle for these conquests and his military exploits. And he's got the long, well, maybe there he doesn't have long hair. I'm filling in Thor. Anyways, but he's, he was great, known for battle. And he brought the hammer and he led the Jews in this military expedition. And they, they revolted and they rose up and they took back the temple. And then after the victory, They went through everything that was desecrated in the temple, and they found one unopened jar of oil. And in that unopened jar of oil, it had been sealed with, I think, Aviathar, one of the Old Testament priests. This is the legend of it. They they found this one jar of oil, and so to to re-consecrate and cleanse the temple... They then took this oil and they poured it out and they, they lit candles with it and, and whatnot. And what happened was miraculously, this, can't, this oil burned for eight days. And it burned for the eight days that were necessary till they could press new oil and they could bring, make new oil and anoint it and have it uh, and make it pure for the temple worship. And so Hanukkah is celebrated as eight days, or the Adam Sandler song, Eight Crazy Nights, right? Uh, eight days and eight crazy nights of celebrating what would be one a major theme in this holiday, this feast, a major theme of how by God's hand, God has brought back his presence. He's consecrated the temple. God is with us. And then there was also this minor theme that was celebrated in this feast. The minor theme was how, how, how the Maccabeans had revolted, how man had taken matters into his own hand, and, and he had reestablished the temple, and he had cleansed the land. And so these were both being, both being celebrated but by Jesus' day, they had found themselves under Roman rule. They were occupied again. See, when, when they had rebelled and they had successfully led this revolt, they established what's called the Hasmonean Empire. Sorry for the history lesson. Don't fall asleep. But that, I think that was down to about 37 B.C. And in 37 B.C., Rome came in and conquered Israel and was occupying it to this day. And so this happens with this highly nationalistic festival where now Israel, where they were were celebrating that God had freed them and brought his presence, and now they have this occupying force of Rome, and in the midst of it, what happens by Jesus' day is they actually flip the themes. And what had been before primarily the major theme was God has done this, and God has saved us, and, and, and God is bringing his presence. This is the best news possible. This is salvation. That had become the minor theme. And the major theme had become what we have done by our own hand. When we are occupied, we bring the hammer. And that was what was being celebrated in Jesus' day. 
And so this is why this is included and why Jesus' interactions are here because the question becomes for the people, whose hand was the hammer ultimately in? And whose hand do you ultimately trust in? Do you trust in God's hand? And are you seeking his presence as your major theme of your life? Or has that become a minor theme and you've left it behind and the major theme has become whatever your agenda is and to bring the hammer, to bring it about and find salvation by your own hand. I think this is very timely because this passage and what Jesus will say, it addresses the same tension that we feel today. In many ways, the state that Israel was in is in the same state that we feel today. And what I'm, I'm talking about, just to say it plainly, is as I think as the church, we feel the cultural influence of the church waning in the West. And, and, the, and the, the question becomes, how do we keep the primary message of, of the gospel, the primary thing that God has given us, that he's given us salvation by his hand and we can rest in his hands. How does that not become the minor theme of our life and in the midst of it because Jesus is calling us throughout this gospel as we've seen to enter into the darkness, to bring the light, to speak boldly, to take action, to get involved, to engage with the world around us. But at the same time, how do we do that in a way that we don't lose our souls? See, in other words, this is a little bit of a counterbalance to a lot of what we've talked about so far in this gospel, which is you must engage in the world and bring light into darkness, and then saying at the same time, as you bring the light into the darkness, don't leave me behind and just pick up the hammer and pursue your own agenda. It's a very timely word for us, this interaction that they're going to have. And so the main question again is whose hand are we saved by? God's, and do we rest there, or our own? So we're going to look at it as the major theme of God's redemption. Then what happens when the minor theme takes over and we take matters in our own hand? And then third, how do we trust God with the hammer? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this interaction. We thank you that you've spoken so clearly in the midst of it. And Lord, help us to see ourselves where we need to see ourselves. Lord, help us to see where ultimately if we have a life that's lived not anchored in the truth of 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 being grasped in your hand. And Lord, wherever that's driving us in life, Lord, would we find that rest? Spirit, would you do that work? Would you bring that home to us so that we might engage wisely and redemptively? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the text opens up with irony. Again, if you look at 22 and 23, it says, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, it took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. Again, the, the, the irony here is that the whole point of the feast, the major theme is that God is with his people. He's cleansed the temple. He's consecrated the temple, and he's with them. And here we have, John has done this again and again. It's a feast, and what they're celebrating, Jesus is there fulfilling it, and they are blind to seeing him. And, and even here down, what is it, in verse, I think, 26 or no, 30. 36, it says, the Father, Jesus is speaking to them a little bit later, and says, the Father consecrated me and sent me into the world. You've been looking for this consecrated reality of God's presence in the world, and I'm right here, and you don't see me. 
And then also the irony here is that when it says that he's walking in the colonnade of Solomon, the colonnade of Solomon was a porch that was in the outer courts of the temple. In other words, this was the place where the people could be. This wasn't a place just for, for the elites. God had gone, in other words, God has gone out. He's done something in Jesus where now Jesus can reach every man, woman, and child. He can reach the entire nation. And he can go on, as Jesus is saying again and again, from there into the world. Jesus has given access to everyone if they would just come through him. And he's right there and they don't see him. And they're, they're talking about this reality and they, they hear it as the minor theme of this festival, but they're missing it. So why? John is cluing us into the fact that they're missing the major theme of the feast. Why are they blind to it? Well, because they had made it something else. Look at verse 24. So because Jesus is here, because of this feast, because of the irony that's going on here, so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Another word for plainly would be boldly. It's another way to interpret that. So why don't you just come out and tell us, I'm God, right? I'm the Christ. And they come to Jesus and say, why don't you just tell us plainly? But Jesus, however, doesn't, he doesn't respond that way. He doesn't say, they go, why don't you tell us you're the Christ? He goes, oh, yep, oh, oh, oh sorry, I forgot. I'm the Christ, guys. And they're like, oh, you're the Christ? He's like, I, I just, I forgot to fill in the blank, right? Jesus doesn't respond that way. Look at how he responds in verse 25 and 26. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. Why does Jesus respond this way? Jesus says, I have told you, but I told you with my actions, with my works. I have spoken very clearly. But you don't believe when you see the works of healing the blind. You don't believe when you see the lame walking, even though these are exactly what the Old Testament prophets said the Christ would do. In other words, Jesus is saying, I've shown you the Christ that the Bible promises. I've shown you the salvation that the Bible promises in the Christ. But I won't say, yep, I'm the Christ, because your idea of the Christ is a twisted one. You expect another hammer. You expect another military revolt. See, what Jesus is doing, if you've ever, you know, when, uh, like a White House press secretary, right, someone asks a question and they have a, a term or a word in it that, that they don't, they're trying to trap them almost. And, and what does the White, uh, a really good shrewd press secretary, what do they say? When they ask a question, they respond by going, I don't accept the premise of your question. You assume something in what you're saying and I don't accept the premise. And Jesus is saying, I don't accept the, the premise of what you're assuming of what the Christ is. See, Jesus knows the major and minor themes aren't just flipped in the feast. They've become flipped in the people's hearts. And what they want of him and what they're seeking in him is not what he brings. See, there's this old phrase you've probably heard, especially if you're in the business world. They, when I, I used to be in the business world, and we used to actually use this all the time. Where it's, I do, it, if you don't accurately diagnose the problem, you can't accurately find a solution. And what's happened here is the people have missed what their ultimate problem is. They, they think the, our problem, that's great that you've taken away sin. That's great that you've, you've healed the, the effects of the curse and that it's demonstrating this new reality. It's great that you're talking about the future and your kingdom coming, Jesus. But ultimately, our problem is Rome. It's right here. It's the cultural captivity. It's the ideology is sneaking in. That's where they believed 
The problem was, and because of that, they're looking for a solution that is a Christ that just addresses that. And so they don't see the true Christ, they don't receive him, and because they, they aren't looking for the solution of the salvation that he's providing them. And Jesus is saying, and where he's going with this, is your deep problem is that you don't have a shepherd. That ultimately you aren't looking for a savior who will deal with the real problem underneath all things. And until you drill down and get to that thing under all things, you will never find life, you will never find peace. You'll never find salvation. You'll seek it by your own hand. That's why Jesus continues then in 27 through 30, he says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. I and the father is one. What is, why does Jesus go here? Jesus is saying something he said again and again and again. We've broken down in this series how again Jesus says, I am one with the father. As the father speaks, I speak. As the father wills, I do. As the father as the Father loves, I love. As the Father gives grace, I give grace. As the Father judges, I judge. And over it, so if you see me, you see the Father. If you hear me, you hear the Father. If you know me, you know the Father. There is no disconnection between Jesus and the Father. And he's saying the works of the Father are demonstrating the heart of the Father to save. And what Jesus does here is he gives them this deep truth in the midst of these uncertain, chaotic times that they're in. He says, listen, I could, I could remove all the... All the I could remove the person who's invaded you, but the issue is at the end of the day, I could, I could dispel all the ideologies. I could push all that out of the way. But at the end of the day, if I don't, your heart isn't resting in me. If that's all it is, and I'm just skimming off the surface and I'm not getting down deep. In fact, what the Bible does again and again is no matter what circumstances, we can have a peace. Peace is not absence of anything. Peace is a presence of a person, of Jesus, of the Spirit. It's like, I'm not just going to remove your circumstances and then 10 years from now, it just returns. What he's saying here is no matter what your circumstances, you can rest in the shepherd's hands. He has you. And that is the major theme of redemption, that God, in the midst of our rebellion, in our midst of our running away, and it's the, in the midst of the death of our sin, that God has willed that his son would come into the world, and the son has come into the world to be the obedient, consecrated, sacrifice for our sins so that we might know the presence of God and know the life in him. It's the major theme. It's why we'll say things, well, by the way, I should point out, this is why here he says no one then can snatch you. It's the only time Jesus uses language like this. Because they think that the problem in their life is that these other things, these worldly things, ultimately are what snatch them. They're afraid that these things are going to be what come along and snatch them and take them away from the Father. And he says, no, no, no. In the midst of that reality of all these things coming at you, you need to have a firm confidence that you are in my hands. And no one can snatch you from my hands. To have that peace, to have that security, to have that confidence, especially when you have to speak up in the midst of those dynamics. For them, it was the Romans. For us, it might be wherever the government's at, wherever regime we feel is around us, populist movements, cultural pressures, on and on and on. This is why we will often say, we don't know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds it at Anthem. And what Jesus is saying here, you can know the one who holds the future, but not only the future, because I hold you. 
and what you need in the midst of life, in the midst of to have confidence, to be bold, to have wisdom, to lay down your life, is you must have that confidence that you're in my hand and that I will never let you go. To know that your salvation, your future, your life, your finances, your marriage, your kids, your circumstances, your country, the next election, your soul are ultimately in his hands. Because what Jesus is saying is if you lose that that major theme of being in my hands and you flip it and make it a minor thing, you make the major thing, what you can do with your own hands then you will live an anxious and ultimately an unjust life. Second point, what happens when the minor theme takes over? It's interesting that when Jesus says you can rest in God's hands, it produces this response in verse 31. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Isn't that interesting? He says, I and the Father are one. Just think about that right beside each other. I and the Father are one, and they pick up stones to stone him. And what's interesting there is it's juxtaposed to Jesus says, you can either live knowing you are in the Father's hand, or you can live spending your life with your hands picking up stones and constantly fighting and warding off and trying to fight the battles with your own hands. We'll come back to that. Hold on to that. Ironically as well, when he says, if the son is one with the father, then if they're picking up stones to stone Jesus, they're ultimately stoning God. Jesus responds in verse 32, I, I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He goes back to the works thing. And, and, and it, it's interesting because, again, all of his works have demonstrated everything that the Old Testament prophets prophesied. He hasn't done anything that's heretical. He's just pointing to the works. But they respond in verse 33. It says, the Jews answer him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. You, being a man, make yourself God. What's interesting here is it doesn't seem like what gets Jesus' response after this is going to be the fact that they really picked up stones. He's not surprised. He's not even going to, you know, insecurely kind of be like, what do you mean I'm a blasphemer? I'm not a blasphemer. Like, what Jesus mainly is going to respond to is that last clause, that claim. You make yourself God. Continue in verse 34. Jesus answered them, it is not written in your law. Is it not written in your law? I said you are God's. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you save him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said I am the son of God. Now, what is Jesus saying here? Probably when that was read in the scripture reading or even now when you're reading that, you're like, where, what, where, what, Jesus? <laughs> where, where are you going with this one? Uh, it's quite unique. In fact, actually, if you were at the Bible workshop uh, a few weeks ago that we did, we do trainings regularly on how to read the Bible. We actually studied this passage. I was like, we can double up my work because you can help me prepare for the sermon, right? So we were studying this passage, and we were all we got to this. And you're like, what do you do with this? Well, one of the things when you're you're looking at the context of Scripture is also when uh, he's quoting a psalm here. It's the only time in the New Testament this psalm is quoted. It's Psalm 82, and he's quoting verse 6. And, and what's happening here is it seems on one level, Jesus is almost proof texting with this verse. So what he's saying is, you, you say that I can't say that I'm a God. Well, your scriptures say that God calls you a God, so I'm just calling myself a God, and God called us God, so I think I'm okay here, right? And so you read that, and you go, that, that sounds like not quite like, I, I get it, Jesus does do it on one level. 
This first part here, that's what he's doing. However, it seems like, wait, is that really all Jesus is doing? Because then you have a problem. Because what if I'm up here preaching and I go, hey, guys, I'm the son of God. And you go, you're not the son of God. And I go, well, Scripture says that we are gods. So I can say that I'm a god. And you go, uh, I, I don't think Jesus intended it that way, right? So Jesus isn't just taking this verse and going, I'm just going to kind of slap it down out of its context. What Jesus does here is he's going to actually use the context of the verse to say something to these men. It gets clear. He, he clearly means more, and it gets clear in verse 37 because it says, if I am not going, doing the works of my Father, and you, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Now, he says essentially what he said before, that the works are consistent with the Father and his will, and so therefore, if it's consistent with the Old Testament words of God and the works are consistent, then how could you charge me with blasphemy? He's saying the works that I do, they bring life, they bring salvation, they bring healing, they bring people walking, forgiveness, grace, mercy, yet with firm judgment and conviction. So how can you charge me with blasphemy? But here's the thing, Jesus isn't just answering their charge of blasphemy here. What he actually does when he points to his works and he says, I do not make myself God. Look at my works. They testify that I'm God. And what he does here is actually something really interesting. When you look at the fullness of the psalm, he rebukes the men. It's a rebuke that we miss. And this is why immediately they want to arrest him. But notice what happens where Jesus rests in the Father's hands. They can't snatch him with their own. Now, what does Jesus do to rebuke them from this psalm? Psalm 86 is, or 82 is actually a, a really well-known psalm. In fact, the original quote is, I said you are God, sons of the Most High, all of you. But what's the context of that verse? It, it's interesting because the psalm, it, you may have come across if you're ever in a comparative religion class, something like that, because this is known as the famous psalm where there's this divine counsel. This is how it begins in verse 1. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. And so people, we use this in comparative religion. They'll say, look, this is an ancient psalm. This is before Israel became monotheistic. It was polytheistic, just like the rest of the ancient world. And so actually here, God's talking to all the gods in the universe, right? And we go down that road and you go, wait, 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 wait. Remember I was in one of these classes. I was like, how about we keep reading, okay? So when you keep reading, then it says, now God, he has them all here. And then it says, continues, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? And I like it, Selah. Is that in there? Selah. So in the Psalms, it's like this moment of like, ponder that. <laughs> like God starts to rebuke them. He brings them all in a room and he goes, you're working in justice. You're working in equity. Sit on that. And then he says, give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. See, what's happening is in the ancient Near East, kings and princes and rulers in the cities, we become like gods and they make themselves like gods. And what God is doing is he's bringing all these rulers from around the world and this, this, this picture here in the psalm, and he brings them there, and he sits them down, and he says, you are trying to make the world in your image. You're hammering it into your own image, and in the midst of it, you're bringing a hell on earth. Your works produce death. And then we get to our quote that Jesus quotes. Do you see what Jesus is starting to do here with the context? When Jews knew, they memorized psalms. So they knew the psalm. As soon as Jesus would have said this, it was a well-known psalm. They would, have did, 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 did. they would have known the context. 
We come back to our quote then. Then he's, I said, this is how the psalm finishes. You are God's sons in the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. Do you see why Jesus quotes this? Jesus says, you think you are gods, but you are mere men. My works testify that I am the son of God. My works bring life. My works bring justice and judgment and freedom. And you, I don't make myself a god. You make yourselves gods. Jesus is saying your works are works that make a hell on earth, that bring injustice and death. I am God because my works show something different. What he's saying is when you fashion, demand God fashion the world according to your agenda, when the minor theme takes over, he says, my works reveal heaven breaking in, but your works demand your, for heaven in your image. Because when you demand a heaven on earth according to your agenda, you demand God, Christians around you, the church, get in line. And you take matters into your own hand and you bring a hammer. And the problem is when all you have is a hammer to manipulate and overwhelm and power, when all you have is a hammer in your toolbox, then everything and every person that gets in your way becomes a nail and you flatten them into your agenda. And especially here what he says in the psalm is those who are weak, he says, that's a human God. That's when the world and heaven on earth becomes the heaven according to our agenda. No wonder they seek to arrest him, right? Now you get the full weight of, you're like, Jesus, come on, you know? See, these, these people were seeking salvation by their own hands, but what they didn't realize is that in making their demands upon Jesus, they were playing God. And it all started when the minor theme had replaced the major theme at some point where they found their salvation, their heaven on earth by their own hands, their own agenda. And slowly they left off their love, their delight, their ability to see because they couldn't recognize it because their heart was so far from it to desire God's presence, to desire being in the Father's hand. They could have their agenda. And they left off that reality to pursue their agenda. So when God shows up, they pick up stones. Why? Because the true Christ is a threat to their agenda. Now, one of the things, this is a weighty passage, and this, the question is, how, where does this land in our day? I think in many ways, again, the church, we feel this tension. We want to reclaim. I think the church is standing in the culture, and there is work to be done. And what we've seen again and again is Jesus has been saying, church, you are to be the light of the world. You are to go into the world. You are to speak. You are to make me known. You, you aren't to passively withdraw. One of our values as a church is that we would actively engage rather than passively withdrawing from the world. So there is this tension that's here, but we should, we should ask 
how do we gain ground as the church without losing our soul and pursuing ungodly agendas? You feel that tension? See, what Jesus is saying here is actually very simple. What he's saying is you must, in the midst of it, you must keep me, my presence, life in me, the main theme of your life. You must anchor me or anchor yourself in me before you can go out into the world. There's a well-known saying, anxiety makes children of us all. Anxiety, when we have things that are uncertain, chaotic times, stressful times, uncertain times, it makes us vulnerable. It makes us confused. It makes us not where, know where to turn. And in our day, with the complex array of things that are all of a sudden happening, from sexuality to just basic civility to the family and the role in society to education to the economy to geopolitical strife to COVID and what might be next to energy and sustainability and on and on, and we could list these things all day. I'm sure you're familiar with them, right? <laughs> it makes us anxious makes us fearful. For, I mean, if we're, I'm honest. If it overwhelms me. And in the midst of sensing that vulnerability, in the midst of sensing all that, what we do is it makes children of us who grab on the simplistic solutions, instant solutions. And, and here's the thing. As I'm talking to leaders around the country, business leaders, if you're a leader of a business, if you're a leader in your home, if you're a leader in a church, if you're a leader in an education, any institution, if you're leading anywhere, you feel this because what you feel right now is where people around are anxious and overwhelmed. They're coming demanding a hammer. They're demanding instant solutions. Fix this. Vote for this. Support this. Do this. Say this. Tell them off. But here's the thing, there are no simple solutions for the complex problem of the fall. Actually, the one, there, there's no silver bullet. If there is a, the one silver bullet in the universe is Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is don't run after these things and leave me behind, but make sure you anchor yourself in me before you go out. I'm not at all, just let me clearly say this because there's so much to get through here and I don't have time to go down every single road. I'm not saying we don't engage politically that we don't engage with the cultural debates. What I'm saying is we do it anchored first, as Jesus is saying here, and making sure we don't leave it off. Because or else what happens is Jesus, if we make the minor theme our main theme, then Jesus won't be enough. He won't be satisfactory. Now, one of the things I want to go back to is the throwing of stones, and this might be, maybe I could say this is one of the ways I see it myself and how you might know that you're making something the minor, the minor theme, the major theme. You know, we know better than we, if Jesus was standing here, we want to pick up stones to throw at him. When Jesus says in the midst of it, why are you pursuing this agenda? Why are you doing these things? But instead, find your hope and your rest in me first. We wouldn't pick up stones, but what we do do is we will pick up stones for those who will speak that message. We will for those who are the messenger. We will for those in our lives, the person who's online. We will for the person who's in our life. We will for the person who says, I won't follow your agenda. I won't go 100% into it. Wherever you're at on the ideological spectrum, but we will pick up stones towards them. 
It reminds me, Exodus 16, 8, Moses says this when the, the people are grumbling in the wilderness. He says, the Lord has heard your grumbling and that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. The divisions, the gossip, the grumbling, the discontent and frustration that's happening in the church all around the country right now is not really ultimately with leaders. It's not ultimately really with people in the church. It's, not, it's ultimately a grumbling and a discontent because the salvation that you have in the hand of God and what God has divinely right now by his hand, his providential superintending hand, right now there's a discontentedness. With that, and this is no longer enough. And so we pick up stones. And demand the simple, instant solutions and slogans. See, the danger of wading out into the culture without the anchor of the gospel is not just liberalism. The danger of engaging the culture and going out there with the gospel and engaging throughout the world and in all the different processes, it's not just, the danger is not just drift into liberalism. We, we aren't just tempted to pursue secular ends with gospel means, right? Just, well, we'll just say about grace, 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 and let people do as they please. That's not the only temptation. The stronger temptation, Jesus says, you have that, you have to balance that with this, which is you can also become tempted to use secular means, power, domination, manipulation. The hammer to accomplish gospel ends. And what Jesus is calling us here is to be a people who rest in his hands and find our salvation in him so that we would pursue gospel ends with gospel means and not lose our soul. And the only way we can get there is by anchoring ourselves in God and allowing him to carry the hammer. That's where we'll close. Trusting God with the hammer. You know what a child who's scared or anxious, what we, what we need is a good father, a good shepherd. That's where John takes us. In verses 40 through 42, it's interesting. All of a sudden it says, Jesus went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Now, what's interesting is Jesus pulls aside from the city. He kind of leaves like this hammer rally. That sounds like a strange MC Hammer reference, but, you know, everyone, it's all about the hammer. It's a, almost a political rally at this point. And he goes off into the wilderness, and what he does is he goes back to the basics. He goes back to the main theme. He goes back to the, this is why there is where the people believe. It may seem strange, but he highlights why Jesus does this, because he highlights what John says. John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. What did John say? What's the summary of John the Baptist? Not John the Gospel writer, John the Baptist. What's the summary of his message? He said, it's the next day when he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They go out into the wilderness in the midst of this place where he said, you are my sheep, I am your shepherd. Come to me and find salvation in me and I will lead you into new pasture, into life. And here he says, I go to the place when that gets mixed with all kinds of agendas and all kinds of sloganeering and you don't know up from down, how do I anchor my soul? You go back to the basics, you go back to the main theme and you remember that the irony of ironies is that it all begins, salvation comes 
when God came as a baby sheep, when he came as a lamb, and he came and he looked our sin, exactly the evil in our hearts and that injustice and our desire to become God's. And even on the cross, in John's gospel, this is why they cry out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. What he does is in the midst of, you can imagine Jesus there, ready to go to the cross, and hearing this, he knows as he goes to the cross that part of the darkness, of the depth, of the death, of our sin that he will take upon himself is our inclination to play God. That when the major theme is no longer to praise God for who he is, but the major theme becomes to play God and take matter into our own hands and not trust him, he comes and he says, I will hang on the cross. I will take that upon myself, even, yes, that sin, and I will fall under the perfect hammer of the justice of God, where perfect justice and grace and mercy and love meet to give you salvation. He says, trust in him. Put the hammer in his hand. See, the temple was purified and consecrated in Judas the Hammer's day to save the nation. But it pales in comparison to what God will do when he consecrates his son and sends him into the world. And he fell under the hammer, not just for the nation, but for the world. And I can't imagine with that imagery, I, I can't help but imagining that as Jesus hung there and the hammer fell upon his palm that we each time the hammer came down on his hands and he looked out at that crowd and he knew as it hit his hands, he knew it is worth it because with these hands I will hold you forever. Don't lose sight of that. I came into this world and was set apart for that moment when my hands would take that payment so that I would never let you go. And now when I rose from the grave by the power of the Father, by the power of the Spirit, and now I am at the Father's right hand, I am at his hand on the throne, and I reign, and I hold the hammer. And so will you trust me and find ultimately your salvation in my hands, or will you find it by your own hand? Rest there first. Find your confidence and your conviction there first. Really quickly, one of the things with this, because Jesus is asking, do you trust the hammer in my hands or your own? By whose hand are you saved? From here, Jesus is saying, listen every day to my voice. Do you have a place when... Are you just listening to the voice of all the pundits, or are you listening to the voice of the shepherd? For every time you listen once to the voice of a pundit, make sure you listen twice, three times or more to the voice of the shepherd. To be reminded of his word. To be reminded that in over and over again throughout, I think this is part of why I think Maccabees isn't included in canon, because this is not the model for how the church is to engage, but it's actually the Old Testament when again and again and again what God does is he shows up, like in Daniel 6, and he says, he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall be destroyed, and his dominion shall be the end, be to the end. 
The battle belongs to the Lord. Every day we can rest in that reality before we set foot out into the ruckus that's around us. Also, one of the things here to consider is do you pray for your enemies? I think one of the things I feel in my heart, the only way I can put down the stones is if I'm willing to put them down and place them in the hands of God. And pray, God, will you bless if they turn and they repent? And God, will you curse their works if they don't? But it's yours. And then faithfully leading and engaging and serving with conviction. Here's where if history has taught the church anything, and you can get this, you can read Tom Holland's new book on dominion, not the Spider-Man guy, but the British intellectual historian, Dominion, where he recounts, he was an atheist going into it, and he came out of it going, how is it that this cross and this reality of the, changed the world? Rodney Stark, who is not a believer, who wrote, a Baylor professor, who wrote The Rise of Christianity, both of them saying, when they went into Christianity to study, and they said, how is it that the world, all the good things, hospitals, the feeding of the poor, the, the saving of the un unwanted and born instead of being aborted and being picked up out of dumpsters, those who provided and served, they were people who rested in the middle of intense persecution. They laid down their lives and they found their life in this Savior because they saw that the Son did the works of the Father and they saw that their works must be consistent with the Son. And that changed the world. And God brought the hammer when the hammer needed to be brought. But God, it started with him changing lives and see people seeing that they're playing God and falling under that hammer in Christ and being changed. Jesus says, keep me your main theme. Lay down the stones. Put the hammer in my hands and rest in my hands. Do not be anxious, child. The Father has you. No one can snatch you from his hands. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this passage. And Lord, we thank you for just this, this balancing, Lord, if we can call it that. From yes, Lord, we are called to boldly enter in, to enter into institutions, to enter into our workplaces, to enter into the, the different cultural dynamics around us, to enter into the debates, to speak boldly. But Lord, help us to do that from a place where we don't just bring the hammer with our own agenda. But Jesus, would you help us to be humbled underneath and bringing our sin before you, bringing our hearts before you and seeing your perfect justice and trusting you with the hammer. Lord, give each of us discernment in what that looks like. Give each of us wisdom in what that looks like. Lord, for each of us, we struggle with this in different ways. But your grace is sufficient. Don't allow us to leave off that truth. Don't allow us to run anxiously and fearfully through life, flinging a hammer. But Lord, help us to rest in you and to serve, wash feet, speak boldly, confidently, knowing that your dominion has no end. We thank you for this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.